Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Heidi Hankel. Heidi is a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and she is the pastor of Bethesda Presbyterian Church right here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So this is, this is we've actually, we've talked once before, I think, and we've just recently met through our mutual friend, Bill Bohr. Yep. And, uh, which is, you know, I won't hold that against you in the least. <laughs> so here we go. Let, so you are an RCA pastor. There's probably tons of RCA ministers out there hammering through the lectionary text this week. In fact, yep. I know some of them in the Philly area. And our first reading is Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Here, I always say, like, this is like, you know that Moses' life is not going well. It's like he was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. So you're out kind of in the middle of nowhere, Midian, and you're working for your father-in-law, right? Mm-hmm. And then this is sort of one of the climactic uh, you know, moments in Moses' life, right? The burning bush. The thing that strikes me, though, about this piece is, so Moses seizes the, the, the bush, and he knows it's not burning up. So he says, okay, I'm going to go check it out. And in the process of that, when he hears God calling out to him from the bush, his response is, here I am. Okay, I think you and I, if we saw a burning bush, would walk up to it and go, what the? <laughs> you know, just, it's not a normal reaction he's even having. So I, when I look at him across the board with uh, maintaining the flocks of his father-in-law, he sees a bush, he's not having normal reaction to it. I mean, Moses is not in... Um, I don't want to say not in his right mind, but Moses is not at the high point of his life. He is struggling. He is um, out there and just working and wandering. And I just watch him as he goes through this. He seems to always constantly be wandering, but never really knowing the end point of it. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, (laughs) I think that's a great insight. Yeah, and and, you know, it's interesting that Moses probably doesn't think that he's on the cusp of a completely new chapter of his life. No. No. That is going to completely change his reality, and he is. And and yet, that's I guess all of us are in that boat, right? We never know when in our individual lives or lives of our faith communities, things are going to take a really different turn than we, you know, than we, we expect, right? Yeah. And sometimes you even get burning bushes, but probably not most of the time. <laughs> most of the time, people, there aren't major signs like that. So, and yeah, and then it's also, it's interesting too, because you have the famous, the con- at the conclusion of the passage, you know, who do I have, who tell him, you know, who, who am I going to say sent me? <laughs> Which is a pretty good question, I think. Like, you know, I mean, how do I, how am I going to, you know, bring this up? Is, and, and then you have the, you know, I am, tell them I am sent you. So we have the name of God revealed, the, the covenant name of God used here, right? Yeah, it feels like it's the same age-old question that happens um, in story after story through the Bible and just kind of like, well, on whose authority do you get to say anything in my life? And uh, we kind of walk around our lives asking the same question a lot of times. Whose authority even gets to tell me in this place? Um, it, what's interesting is as God's trying to explain this to Moses, as he's trying to 
lay out what he's seeing and what he's feeling, he actually says to Moses, look, the whole reason we're having this conversation is because I've heard the cries of my people. And he actually says, um, in some of the texts, he says, I'm concerned about their suffering. But the word there, like, the y- it's yada. You know how we say yada, yada, yada? Right, right, yeah. right. So it's the Hebrew word for I know. Yeah. So he says, yeah. I know they're suffering in the middle of this. And um, part of me kind of steps back again into Moses' position of like, well, don't you know my suffering? <laughs> Here I am tending my father-in-law's flock, and you're telling me I have to go take care of these people when I'm suffering. And I think Moses again says, where do I get off doing this? I, I'm I'm hurting my father-in-law's flock. I am not anywhere near in a position to do this. And so whose authority do I have to go and say this? So it just strikes me that the, he's in his own suffering, and yet God is calling him in the midst of his own suffering to tend to his other people who are in suffering. So. Yeah, and what's interesting, you know, you in the beginning of Exodus, God really doesn't say too much, right? There's not a lot of, there's not a ton of, God is, seems pretty silent, and and yet God isn't inactive or indifferent. And yet that's, I mean, I, I think what have, this is something right we, that we all have to deal with uh, as people that are preachers, as people in congregations. Is there are times when it seems like, like, where is God acting? Like, it's God, where's the great, was the Francis Schaeffer book title, God is there and he is not silent. And yet so often it does seem as though God is silent. But now finally in Exodus, you have him kind of here speaking to Moses. That's probably the number one question. I think some of us as pastors here, when people are walking through oppression and suffering, just where's God? Uh, We have a hard time reconciling as people a world that has suffering and evil and a world that has a God that says, I hear and I see it and I love you and I'm with you in the middle of it. And, And we don't know how to reconcile those two things at the same time. And yet this is the place where they meet in our faith and on the cross. So... Um, I think God is giving Moses his cross to bear here, and in the same way, Moses' entire life is going to change. Um, as we talk about some of the other texts, we'll, 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 we'll see some of that flow in. And let's, yeah, let's, speaking of other texts, let's take a look at Romans 12, Mm. verses 9 through 21. Okay. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Mm. You have, you know, Paul is kind of giving these exhortations to the church in Rome. Great things like rejoice now, be patient, suffering, persevere. That's strange. Uh, So then, you know, bless those who who persecute you. Um, Bless and do not curse them. Um, so there's this, there's this, you know, don't pay, re, uh, repay evil, for, you know, for evil. So it's almost like there's some echoes of the Sermon on the Mount here mm-hmm. in Romans 12, which I don't know if Paul knew that tradition. That's the thing. We don't know what Paul knew of, of the Jesus traditions, right? Like the gospels are. Well, we certainly know, you know, as he's writing this, I'm sure he's had conversations with this, but the one thing it does tell us is humanity continues to struggle with these very issues <laughs> from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus to the time of Paul to the time of today. And that's, was that not our national conversation in the last two weeks yeah, in this country? Yeah. Uh, we, we have a hard time as a human beings living in harmony. We, we almost prefer and tend towards discord. And Paul is just, he, he has to say this to the church. He has to actually say this to the church. So yeah, this is just our condition. Yeah, it's really interesting too that 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 Paul. I mean, 
there's I heard N.T. Wright, I think, say something at a these lectures he gave at Regent or something, where he said that he thinks that Romans fifteen six is key to understand the whole book. That that together with one voice you may glorify um, God, you know, glorify God, um, and that there is enmity and division. You know, there's there's this tension around the Jewish Gentile Christian question. Some people think that that this is written at a time when the Jews were kind of expelled from Rome, and then maybe they're coming back, and Paul is trying to sort of. And then people are thinking, well, see, there there can't be God's people if they're expelled. And the, you know, the, the whole question of has the identity of God's people shifted to the Gentile, you know, mm-hmm. away from. So yeah, in the midst of all that, that I think yeah, you're right. These things aren't just general injunctions, but yeah, this church is really struggling. <laughs> it seems like, or this is a message that's really important for the, that they hear. Yeah, I, the thing that fascinates me is. When I try to read Paul's writings, I try to remember, too, that Paul is a person who really understands what it is to live under um, suffering and shame. And we don't really think about that. But, I mean, Paul was a murderer. I mean, he was a flat-out murderer. And when he comes to God, God knows all of that about him. So we're talking about the God who knows, and he knows Paul's condition. And so as Paul is talking to them, um, he's not just exhorting them to live in harmony and, and stay away from discord, but he actually says, you know, be willing to associate with people of low position. And and even when Paul went, he found the people sometimes in the lowest position just as Christ did. And that's where he made his ground to stand. And those people tend to be the ones suffering, the ones in oppression, the ones who are crying out to God. And it's just, there's this theme across the board with Moses and with Paul, and we'll see it again with Jesus, that when you are walking through this pathway of suffering, um, there is just a different way to handle it. And if you try to keep your life ordered, if you try to keep your life with the rules and keep your faith the way you want it, rather than engaging with the people around you, engaging even with your enemies by blessing them, to engage with the other people, you are going to lose your life. I mean, that's what Paul talks about. If you try to gain it by keeping it ordered and keeping it together and not getting messy in the middle of it and walking with people through their suffering and their pain, as he's talking about and associating with people of lowly position, you are going to miss the whole point of the gospel. Sorry, I'm starting to preach now. No, that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love. No, it's interesting to see. I've been thinking a lot lately about Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, where he talks about the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. Mm-hmm. And the theologians of glory, he says, kind of they can't see what's re- what's really there. Like they're always trying to sort of make reality something better than it is, and make human yeah. beings something better than they are, and sort of build the tower, bow the stairway to heaven from the ground up. Versus the theologian of the cross who can accept what's really there, can look at pain and brokenness. And so, you know, and so I think that that really resonates with what you're saying. Like, I think so often, uh, we think the key to human wholeness is the glory story, but we're yeah. really, mm-hmm. it's, 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 you know, be, it's weakness, strength is in weakness. Yeah. And, and, and suffering actually, when, when you, we know that God suffered, uh, <laughs> yeah. then suffering is something that we can at least look at and accept its reality. You know, don't have to paper over it and pretend that reality is something it's not. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I think that leads us into the Matthew text. You Absolutely. To- all right. So Matthew 16. So this is a pretty big uh, moment in uh, in the Gospels. And in, in the Gospel story, right? You have this, you know, the the confession of uh, Peter. A couple of things seem to make a transition. This confession, also 
The death of John the Baptist seems to be big in the life of Jesus. That Jesus' ministry seems to shift a little bit. His mm-hmm. self understanding or something seems to shift. Where you know, and his I think that before this we've had we've seen like the, the feeding on the five thousand and things like that, where he still looks like a kind of typical Messiah figure. You know, like, mm-hmm. he, like he, people could still kind of mistake him for the maybe the traditional kind of messianic figure. They you know, th- that they're expecting at the time. And here you have Peter make the confession of the Christ. And then Jesus says, ex- explains like that, that his messiahship is going to involve suffering. And Peter's like, no way, not on my watch. Right. And right after he said, you know, on this, on this Rocky, you the Rocky man, I'll build my church. Immediately get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so he goes from rock like to Satan and just one, one quick break. Of That's why we love Peter. He's so much like us. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that, uh, from just to connect from what you were talking about with Luther and the glory story, I feel like uh, Peter reacts like most of us do when suffering comes. When people start telling us their story of suffering, we want to wrap it up in a bow tie, give it a nice, good, happy, joyful, can't you just get on board with this explanation and walk away. And even as Christians, we want to do that. We want to stay in the positivity, the joy, the hope, the faith of that. And when you are approaching suffering or you are walking through suffering, that's not what you need. And that's not where God meets you. Do you think people do that sometimes because seeing the person suffering gives them anxiety? So in some ways, it's not trying to be compassionate to the person. It's trying to do with your own. Well, okay, I'm uncomfortable with your suffering. So let me try to make it go away so that I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> I, th- I think that's one of the things. I think humanity in general is uncomfortable with suffering. Just um, we create a lot of it. We just don't like to go through it ourselves. <laughs> exactly. We're good at producing it. Yeah. Good at managing it. But I think some of it too is people don't know because we have not given a good theology of suffering as a church, to be honest with you. We have not taught them, A, that God doesn't ordain suffering, but we are called to walk with people through it. And that's what it looks like. A lot of the times it's not about talking to them. It's about listening. Um, you notice that the passage actually starts out from that time on, Jesus began to explain um, that he was going, he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to suffer many things. So he's trying to explain to the disciples, there is a lot of suffering ahead. This is what's coming ahead. He's trying to prepare them. Um, much like, you know, when they, you know that grandma or grandpa is going to die and you're trying to explain to your children, okay, here's what's coming up. And the disciples, like little children, give a typical human being simple response of, no, I can save them. <laughs> and whether Peter does that out of he doesn't want to go into suffering or whether he does it out of just simple, he really feels he can take on the world. He is with the Messiah, the King. Um, Jesus just says to him, like, that's, no, no, that's that's not God. That's not the word in this moment. And sometimes we have to say that to people around us. That's a hard word to speak around us sometimes. It's just, I don't, I need you to stop talking and I need you to listen. So I, I don't know how to preach that one, but I'm going to let everybody else figure that one out. For this no, I, no, I agree. I think that's no, I think that's a good word. I think that that you know, it, it's interesting. Stanley Harawas, the theologian at Duke, said that we don't have to, as Christians, make history come out right. History came out right in the death and resurrection of Christ, mm. and so that there's a real freedom from having to. And you know, it, it never talks about in the Bible building the kingdom. The kingdom is always received, inherited. Like we don't. We don't have to control things, <laughs> or yeah. So you, that that when you take it seriously, I think you're, you're right. It frees you mm-hmm. to be present and patient because, you, well, first of all, you can't control anything, <laughs> and second of all, um, maybe maybe it's liberating to 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 realize that we're not called to control anything either. 
Yeah, I think that's why he's, again, I go back to that point where Jesus says, you know, if you try to save yourself, you're going to lose it. So in the middle of this mess that we call life, in the middle of the chaos, what does that look like for us? How do we live the gospel? I mean, in this moment, Jesus is saying, Peter, that's not the word of God right now. That's not the gospel in this moment. So how do we how do we lose our lives? And I don't know, I would I would say it means leaving the order, leaving our nice controlled, non-chaotic lives, and sometimes walking with that person through the chaos of addiction, through the chaos of um I just all the things that life hits. No, yeah, I, I think I think that's right on. That's beautiful. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which there's this great quote that I have it available because I wrote it down for something I wrote earlier today. I'm but, glad to do. But uh, this guy Frank Lake, who was a Christian psychiatrist, and he died in the early '80s, but wrote this like thousand-page tome called Clinical Theology, where he's kind of integrates psychiatry and theology. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, he says that when we, we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it, when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God Himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it turns it into a satisfactory channel. Yeah. I think that is so powerful, that yeah. image of like, of because of, we do, right? We want to have like, or we think of ourselves like a bucket that contain like good things, you know, you know it's it, instead of, you know, that, that, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> and so this, I, I love that phrase, a bit like in the bottom, get knocked out of humanity. So that, that it makes it a channel that God can, you know, flow the, the life and energies of grace through. Uh, that's, I mean, that to me is such a powerful. I, I think Eugene Peterson in the message translates this like, um, if you want to find your true self, uh, which is, which I think like, the, the trying to save our life, we save the shadow self, like the self, the self that we project to other people. I want people to think I'm okay and I've got it together. But if we want to find our real true selves, that yeah, I think that embracing the reality of of suffering and weakness is is probably you're right how we do it. So Luke writes the book of Acts to try and play some of this out. This is even before Romans, and he titles the book Acts, and yet the entire mandate that the book starts with is the mandate to be witnesses. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot about what you do rather than what you say, because what we do, actions speak louder than words, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when Jesus, I, I keep coming back to that part where he just says, if you try to save your soul, if you try to keep it in the nice little box, everything's going to fall apart. And when God, that's what he says, he's going to go, when God comes, when the father comes with his angels, then he'll reward each person according to what he has done, not what he said. And so... I, I just keep coming back to that theme all the way across the board from Moses, Jesus, to even Paul, as they are going across. There's this theme of suffering, being with those who are lowly in position, and suffering's about to come. And how do we walk with people through that? How do we actually be the witness in the middle of it? If we're supposed to be like Christ, Christ left glory. So he mm-hmm. left his, his stage of glory. He became little. I mean, he left his power, his all-knowingness. He limited that. I didn't, shouldn't say he left it. He limited it, became fully human, yet fully divine. And he chose to walk into the darkness. He left the light, and he came into our darkness to do that. So how do we actually leave our own glory, become little, and enter into other people's darkness with them to be the light that is with them through it as they walk through the suffering and bring them to the light? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I have no answers for that. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, right. And the, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I think that, that. Sorry, I'm stuck on this theme. <laughs> no, I, no, I like, it's really, you know, it's really interesting too. Like I, 
the other thing I was thinking about was um, this guy, Robert Capon, wrote this great book on the parables. talks about how he thinks Jesus' teaching really shifts after the death of John the Baptist mm-hmm. and, and, and involved in, in, you know, in the confession and the transfiguration. And he said, he talks about how he, he, Jesus goes from the parables of kingdom, the kingdom to what he calls the parables of grace. Mm. He says, with these, he says the first parables, the parables of the kingdom, they tell about how the kingdom is mysterious and present. And, and you know, he says, but they, they do not in any developed way enunciate the paradoxical program by which the kingdom is in fact accomplished. That is by death and resurrection. Mm. The development of that theme comes, as I see it, only in the parables of grace. And it comes after a series of events and utterances that show Jesus more and more preoccupied with death. Beginning with the death of John the Baptist and continuing through the feeding of the 5,000, the first prediction of his death and resurrection, the transfiguration, and the second prediction of his death and resurrection, he gradually reaches a clear realization that the working of the kingdom is mysteriously but inseparably bound up with what Luke calls in Luke 9, there went his exodus. In other words, with the passion and exaltation that he is shortly to accomplish in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And I think that dying and rising, and that's the, that, that pattern, right? It's, it, it's, it's not just what establishes the kingdom. It's, it's the way we live in the kingdom. It's a continual dying and rising with Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of continue to die to the glorious stories we tell ourselves so that we can, like, we don't need, uh, we don't need uh, good advice. We need good news of death and resurrection. <laughs> that I, I think that's brilliant. I love that. It is the um, it, when we die to the pieces, we act, our eyes are able to see more. We, it just frees us up to be able to see more. And the cross, I feel like, is where our total theology meets in the middle of that, where we we actually see our true selves. So we started out this entire discussion. We were talking about how do you find your truest self, and it feels like at the point of the cross, at the point where our God meets us and all of our humanity meets us, is in that place. And but we don't stay there. And so it's just, I, I agree, it's the constant cycle of just opening our eyes, seeing more of the ugh of life. That's a, that's a new word there, ugh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the ugh of life. And just constantly, okay, we're going to go out and try it again today. Okay, we're going to go out and try it again today. And But how do we how do we communicate that to people in the church? How do we live it? How do we demonstrate it in everyday ways when God says, you know, Scott, Scott, you know, do we, are we the people like Moses that are going, here I am? Or are we going, <laughs> what the, hmm? you know, it's, um, I think our reactions and everything are, are part of the cycle that God is dealing with as he brings us to the cross. He is just communicating with us all the way through this, all the way through the peace. And I feel like Moses is one type. Paul talks to another group of people and Jesus talks to a whole nother group of people. Mm. And you see three different reactions from humanity when God is speaking to them and calling them to the cross for that dying and resurrection cycle. So I guess my question too is, which one are you? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I guess that's, I mean, that's beautiful. I think that that is constantly our story. It's like uh, you know, George Hunsinger, theologian at Princeton, I heard him say once that the gospel is once for all, right? Like you're, you're baptized once, your redemption is accomplished at the cross. And yet it's again and again. It's revisiting that. He said, and the higher and deeper often comes from the again and again. So I like revisiting. Heidi, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. 
Thanks to Heidi Hankel for being my guest. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, fare thee well. 